Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians 4. We will read verses 7 through 16, asking the question, how does a church maintain unity? We're told to do it. How do we do it? We're going to read verses 7 through 16. Uh, I just want to say before, as you're turning there, I'm so glad to see faces instead of just a camera. Um, it's so good to be together. I praise God for this opportunity. It's wonderful to be with his people. Let's go ahead and read Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. This is God's word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me together? Our King, Lord Jesus, we need you today. We send with our, with our mouths and with our hearts and with our hands praise to you. We say that you alone are God and King, and we desire above all else to live before you as your subjects, joyful, happy, serving, united, honoring to our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that you would take the word and drive it deep into us. May your Holy Spirit continue to work. Would you grant us to be strengthened in the inner man by your Spirit's power so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith? God, would you please bless the reading and preaching of your word as it is powerful to save and to make known what it means to follow and love Jesus Christ, the real king of the universe. Bless this time in your name, we pray. Amen. Last week at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul exhorted us or told us or urged us to walk out our Christian lives in unity, our calling in a worthy manner, right? And the first item up for, the, for discussion was the first thing you needed to consider was to make sure that we were maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Unity. Our reading this morning kind of picks up where we left off last week and gives us an answer to a good question about what Paul has already said here. We know already that we are supposed to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul told us that in verse 3 of chapter 4. 
We even know why we are to be unified. We look at that last week. He told us that in verses four through six. It's based on the nature of the Godhead and how he calls his people. It's one spirit, one Lord, one God and father of all. He makes one body and his people enter into Christ through one faith and one baptism. So we know that we're supposed to maintain unity and we know why we're supposed to maintain that unity. But you and I may be wondering then, how? How are we to maintain this unity of the spirit? Now, you may just think this is a clever way for a preacher to kind of align things up and like this is the way to get into the text, which is kind of true. But more importantly, I realize that this is an ever-present relevant question for us in our time period. Think of where we're at today as a nation, as a country around the world. We're in the middle of a pandemic where family and friends are divided from one another, where some kids aren't even going back to a school building this fall, where we are purposely separating ourselves from one another in hopes to stave off the terrible effects of this virus. Uh, also, at the same time, we're in the middle of a cultural war where we are tempted to believe that the very color of our skin marks on whose side we're on. It's bad out there. Consider uh, November, what's coming up for us. The presidential race has the potential to drive even larger, deeper wedges between different sections of our nation. The call for unity has never been more relevant or needed, and everyone knows we need it. More than ever, we need to learn to get along, right? But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about how we should get along as fellow creatures, as fellow image bearers, as those who live within the world in general. Paul tells us in other areas that Christian loving, living ought to, of course, influence the world around us for the good, that we ought to be salt and light, that we ought to strive for justice, to love mercy and peace, and that we should be good citizens, of course, submitting to our government as God has given us them as our leaders. But here in Ephesians 4, he's not talking about getting along with other people in general. He's talking about maintaining the unity of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the unity of the church. That's the starting point for where we're at this morning. The church, specifically whatever expression of the church that you and I are a part of, our local church that we have joined together with. This is where Paul is especially calling us to unity of the Spirit. So it's right for us to take this passage and actually apply it directly to us as Cornerstone Bible Church. So let's ask the question again, how do we, as Cornerstone Bible Church, maintain the unity of the Spirit? Think for a moment. This means that our unity is demanded by God, is based on God, and now we will learn that it is empowered and sustained by God. Guys, it was never ours to do. It has always been his work from the beginning of time until this point, this very present action that's going on right now. He is doing this work in us. In short, we are not left to figure out this unity on our own. And that, to me, is a big relief. I mean, if you consider this, we aren't just told to go keep the peace and then left to figure it out. I, I don't know how many of your homes maybe work this way. You have children and Maybe I'm the only one that ever grew up this way or has these type of children, but they don't seem to get along very well sometimes. 
And when that happens, I can remember my mom coming to me and my sister, who were at odds with one another, that's a nice way to say it, and telling us, hey, you need to get along. I don't care how you do it, but you need to get along. And so we were left to do the task, whatever it was to do, and make sure that we actually got along doing it and not biting each other's heads off. Again, this is the way that we understand sometimes getting along. Like neighborhood kids get together and play together and make up rules for whatever game they're going to play, and they can figure it out and they get along. Sports teams, when different athletes come together, they've got to figure out a way to join together, have some sort of unity, and play the sport that they're going to do. Whole nations, think about this one for a minute, whole nations are constantly trying to figure out how they can uh, obey the rules of the world and yet get their people to get along and figure out how to have some sort of unity. All these different things lead to diverse forms of attempted unity. Of course, some unite um, you know, around documents of freedom and rights that allow for each one to make his own way if they will only simultaneously hold the freedoms of others and abide by the community rules that help govern them. Some countries unite under one dictator. Whatever he says goes, all subservient to whatever he or she says. His law or her law is the glue that binds them all together. And that's how they unite. Some unite around a system of reward, maybe. A model that encourages others to work together with everyone so that, in the end, they will all benefit more together than they would have if they had just tried everything on themselves. And then some, of course, unite around uniformity. Everyone trying to be the same. Everyone doing the same things. Everyone looking the same. The name of the game is equality. or intended to try to make everyone the exact same so we can have unity. And then you and I also know of unfortunate events around the world where some just unite around fear and oppression, where the fear of violence or persecution or negative consequences for not uniting under oppression causes them to unite and do whatever they need to do. As you and I can see and imagine as we think about this, we know that there are some good ways to unite and there are some terribly wicked ways to unite. But question for us is, are we then, as Christians, supposed to go about and find the most noble way and the best way and the most Christian way to unite, like you would a nation or a group of people trying to do something and find unity together? Are we to invent maybe and be creative about new ways about how to make sure that we have good community unity within our church? Are we left to give that a try ourselves, to do our best there is good news for us. It's already been told us how to do this. Someone has shown us what we're supposed to do. We don't have to invent new ways to have unity with one another. In Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, what we just read, Paul is going to tell us how we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, not surprisingly, Christ is involved, and Paul will reference, of course, many of the things that he's already said in the first three chapters of Ephesians. What I'm going to do this morning is a little different than I normally do. I'm going to outline our text with four questions for us. Number one, uh, again, no normally I'm not very good at giving you guys an outline, but I think this will help us move through and not get distracted by so many dependent, independent clauses, prepositional phrases, all the things that he's doing here. So let me ask the four questions. What gifts has Christ given to the church? Number two, how do these gifts work? Number three, what is the result of these gifts? 
And then number four, what is the purpose or the ultimate end of these gifts? Again, now if you're following along, I'm just going to say it one more time. If, you're, if you take notes, that's fine. I'll repeat these as we go along. But number one, what gifts has Christ given to the church? Number two, how do these gifts work? Number three, what is the result of these gifts? And then number four, what is the purpose of these gifts? So let's go ahead and take a look at the first five verses and try to answer the question in regards to helping us maintain unity. What gifts has Christ given to the church? Let's read verse 7 through 11. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each believer is given gifts, not an explanation very much here of what's going on, but we could easily fill in some details here from other passages, namely 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 that talk about all the different things that Christ gives to his people. But each one has different gifts given out by Christ according to his plan. Let's pick up in verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So here we are in chapters four through six, right? The the practical part of our letter and already we're immediately met with more information to help us understand that we are not doing this on our own. And the first thing he's telling us is that we have been given something by Christ. We aren't left to figure this out by ourselves. And this is a great way to start things off. He's saying that the triumphant king, The one who was slain for his people, purchasing our salvation, having been raised from the dead, is now the one who sits at the right hand of the Father in absolute power over all things. I mean, he already told us this in chapter 1. Actually, we even read it this morning. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 describes Jesus as the one whom God raised from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's this king who now gives us grace. Verse 7 tells us that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. But then we read the next few verses and we kind of get a little confused at first. We're not exactly sure what he's trying to do. Paul, though, is drawing from what he's already said in chapter 1, what we just read, and from what we already know about Psalm 68. What you're going to see here is that he's going to quote in some way Psalm 68.18. All the gift-giving stuff is coming out of someone who has earned the right to give gifts to his people. Jesus Christ, our Lord, we know that this is true. He has come to do this for us, a Lord of all, that we learn in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that God has given Jesus as head over all things to who? To the church. He has accomplished the work that he came to do. He has dealt, get this, the decisive blow to our great enemy, Satan, sin, and death. And now rising from the grave, he instructs his disciples, if you remember from Acts 1, 4, and 5, he says, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. He's coming. Wait there in Jerusalem. 
Then we know he ascends to the Father's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In short, get this, he takes all the principalities and powers and angels and demons and has control over all of them. And now he sits here, ascended king, and he gives gifts. Man, sometimes I wish our church would say amen or clap or something, but uh, this isn't just rhetoric. This isn't just an idea of how to explain this. This isn't churchy stuff. He is helping us understand. Kids, if you're, you listen for a minute, this is a real story that Jesus went to heaven and because of his victory over Satan, sin, and death, and all the principalities and powers, he is able and is qualified to give gifts. John read about it actually at the end of his reading this morning in Acts 2, that Christ being the exalted one was able to pour out what he had received, the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a minute. This isn't rhetoric. Paul is telling us what really happened, that Psalm 68, although it's true in its own way, in its own day, it really was true, that Psalm is being expanded and fulfilled in an even greater way in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Psalm 68 is, is not a simple psalm to summarize. If, if you look at it, it's difficult. There, there's many different contexts to consider. There's a lot of theology going on. There's a lot of messages that we need to take into consideration. But one thing is clear in Psalm 68. It is the psalm of a triumphant God, the one who has going, is going now to Mount Zion, having complete control over his enemies and winning the right to be the king and sovereign over all, take or receive gifts from men and do whatever he sees fit with those things. Psalm 68, 18 says this, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, admittedly, if you're, if you're reading that or you're listening, that's a little bit different than what Paul said in Ephesians 4. But there's no mistaking that Paul is referring to the triumphant God who is in sovereign control of all and who has won the right to act however he sees fit. In this psalm, you'll notice that uh, he says that God was receiving gifts among men. But in Ephesians 4, Paul says that he gave gifts to men. Uh, now, what exactly is Paul doing here? I mean, did he, did he make a mistake? He thought it said that, but he, he, oh, I didn't know that it said the other thing. Whoops. Or does maybe he has like a different Bible that he's looking at that, that we're not looking at? Or perhaps did he, is he properly understanding the whole context of Psalm 68, giving us a summarization that sounds an awful lot like verse 18 perfectly and expanding on it to show us the full fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This usage of Psalm 68:18 in Ephesians 4 is a really good example of an apostle's use of the Old Testament for his own proper purposes in proclaiming Jesus Christ. Oftentimes as we look through the scriptures, it's difficult for us to understand this because the way that we usually quote things is perfectly. We like to just kind of quote it for what it is and then mean exactly what that is. But that's actually not true. Oftentimes we'll hear people hear a whole speech and summarize it up in maybe one or two sentences. And it may sound like one of those sentences, but they're trying to make sure they get the whole thing in one statement. This is a really good discussion for us to have here, to understand that Paul is using this for his own proper purposes to expand and show Jesus Christ as the ultimate and better fulfillment of Psalm 68, 18. So I've decided to do something a little different today. Uh, I'm going to give us the answer and move on. 
without doing a bunch of explanation here because we are actually going to try to tackle this question in our live stream this Thursday. So we'll try to get together and actually ask, how does Paul use Psalm 68, 18 here in Ephesians 4? Because again, there's tons of different contexts that we need to consider, and we want to work through that in a, in a, in a more careful way so you can understand. So tune in on Thursday uh, night as we talk about Psalm 68, 18. I think it'll be helpful. However, I'm not going to leave you hanging. For now, I'll simply say that Paul is not arbitrarily changing words to do his own thing. He's just not like, hey, I'm an apostle. I can kind of twist all these words to do whatever I want to. No, no, no. That's not what's happening here at all. As if the psalm just was something to be twisted and used for his purposes. Paul is properly showing us that the core idea and reality in Psalm 68 has been accomplished not only back here in the Old Testament, but has been accomplished in a better and new way in Jesus Christ. Like it affects them. Like something has happened for them that didn't happen for all the other Old Testament saints. Let me talk through this. Paul says in verse 8, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, we know this phrase, again, we've already talked about it from Psalm 68, but the first readers hear this and are thinking of God's triumph in Egypt. They're considering the real context, his capture of the Canaanite peoples, his ascension to Mount Zion to be the king reigning there, and probably the fact that God has received gifts from his victory, and maybe even that he has given them out to his people. But Paul isn't talking about God leading his people in victory over Egypt and capturing the Canaanite peoples. He's referring to Christ and what he has done as the word made flesh. Now track with me here. Verse 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul's referring to the incarnation or the word made flesh of Jesus Christ. He asks this little kind of rhetorical question, what does he ascended mean, except that it means he first ascended, I'm sorry, descended. He's saying that there was one who didn't just ascend and go up, but who had to first descend. Jesus had to come down from the Father and come and be made in flesh, born of a woman. We know this is true. He descended to the earth put on human flesh. We call this the incarnation. We call Jesus becoming man, the word being made flesh. Jesus descended in the lower regions, the earth. Paul, what he's doing here is he's tracing the Messiah's movement. But get this, not only spatially, oh, that's true. He was up here in heaven. Now he's down here in earth. Also in position. Now track me again. Think about Romans, I'm sorry, Philippians 2. This is this thing that tells us to be an example. Christ is our example of humility. He says in verses 7 through 9 that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Get this, one more. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, going further, even the death of a cross. Therefore, now, now you see him down here, right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We're watching him descend and now be exalted to ascend to the right hand of the Father far above all others. 
And unless you didn't hear John say this earlier, before Christ ascended, he told his disciples to wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come. And they did this. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all believers, Peter explained this phenomenon in Acts 2, 32 and 33. Listen to this. He said, this Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from God the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out or poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter, too, proclaims that this ascended Lord Jesus pours out the promised gift of the Holy Spirit on his people. By the time that we get to Ephesians, then, as we hear Paul speaking about this, we're still talking about the same thing. Nothing has changed. Paul is going to give us more detail and show how, how wonderful this is for us as the church and how it affects how we live life together. Paul is taking the reader's knowledge of God's accomplished victory, again, Psalm 68, about how they went over and, and God's accomplished victory over Egypt and the Canaanite peoples and his ascension on Mount Zion. And he shows us that Christ has done the same thing, except even bigger and more of a universal and eternal and cosmic and spiritual way has been over all things. He didn't just overcome Egypt and the Canaanite peoples. He overcame Satan, sin, and death, and every enemy of God. To the point that Paul can say that God put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Paul proves that Christ has vanquished all of his enemies and has earned the right to reign supreme over all things and gives gifts to people if that's what he decides to do his best. For, for us, then, there are absolutely no grounds for skepticism or unbelief if we trust that Jesus Christ was raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The ascended Lord Jesus, who they cannot see, really has given gifts of grace to his people. Get the logic, right? The logic is pretty simple. If they believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he has risen and that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, which they do, they then have to believe that Christ really has given grace. Paul's made his point pretty clear. You've got gifts from Christ. And since this is true, let me list a few of them will help us to see how these gifts serve for your unity. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now remember what he is doing. Remember what Christ is doing. He has been victorious over all things, and now he sets to doing the work of filling the universe with his rule and reign to unify all things in himself. He is supplying everything the church needs to be the agent of change and the example for the whole universe to see. It's important then that he gives the church gifts since he knows that this is what they need to do the things he has called them to do. In our passage particular here in Ephesians 4, he gives certain individuals to the church. Look at that. He says, instructors, teachers, leaders who will proclaim and guard the message of Jesus Christ and all that it means to obey him as the true king. Jesus is giving teachers who would clearly communicate how we are to live in the kingdom of God. He gives us apostles and prophets. As of course, we know this is a foundational role of authority and experience and proclaimers of the mystery of Jesus Christ. These men knew Jesus, had experienced his ministry, and were witnesses then to his glory. 
They proclaimed Christ. They corrected heresy. They penned scripture. And they became the foundation of the New Testament church. But these were accompanied by evangelists. If apostles and prophets were the foundational workers within the church, it can be helpful for us to see the evangelists as the foundation and continued workers outside of the church, with their main ministry being the proclamation of the gospel to those who did not believe, those who needed Jesus Christ to be their savior. Now, of course, there's overlap between some of these categories, but there's the main function here that we see. John prayed for one this morning, our missionaries that go forth to a place that does not know the name of Jesus as evangelists, telling them the good news of Jesus Christ, that he really is the God of both the heavens and the earth and the water, that they must have him if they're ever to know salvation. Evangelists are gifts that the gospel get rightly proclaimed and that they would have the next generation of actual Christians be saved. But then he gives the final category, right? Shepherds and teachers. It's probably the group of men that by us, by far the largest and most prolific in the church compared to the other categories he's talked about. Those who have been given to each congregation, the shepherds and pastors and teachers. This group is not relegated to a different task than the other ones, but rather continues the things, the work of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists within the specific workings of a congregation. Teaching. Leadership, shepherding, guiding, and guarding against heresies that can easily creep in. These men, these shepherds and teachers, are to teach the apostles' doctrine to the whole congregation and teach others to teach as well. We learn that from Timothy and Titus. These gifts are not uh, positions of grandeur or uh, something that you can somehow earn and that that's the way that this goes about. No, we see here that it is something given by God. It's not a place of grandeur or fame or accomplishment, but rather it is a position of service and responsibility and vested authority by Christ. They function as working gifts to glorify Christ through their ministry to the saints. So after all that work, we get to the answer the first question. Why has Christ given gifts to the church? I'm sorry, what gifts has Christ given the church? He has given grace to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In particular, he has given the church those who can proclaim the good news, who can teach and lead and shepherd the church of Christ. But this leads us to our second question. How do these gifts work? Look at verse 12. I'm going to start in verse 11, but 12 is where we're going next. Verse 11, he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, this is not exactly what we might have been expecting. Now, if you've been around Cornerstone long enough, you've heard this before, so it's not new. But it seems like Paul is saying that these spiritual leaders are not meant to do all the ministry work, but rather they are to equip the saints, prepare, give to, equip the saints so that they can do the ministry, so that they can serve and work and minister the gospel to one another and to the world around them. Paul is teaching us that each of us are on the hook for ministry of the gospel. It is not just those who you call pastor or shepherd or elder. It is every single one of us who claim Jesus Christ as Lord. We all have been given the ministry of the gospel, both to the world and to one another. 
In other words, pastors are here to equip the rest of the congregation to do the work of maturing one another in Christ. Paul is teaching us that each of us bear, that bear the name Jesus Christ are to serve one another in love, to love Christ with our hearts and with our hands toward one another. And you'll see this a very specific direction here in the service. Look what he says. It's for the building up of the body of Christ. The growth or the, the building up of the body, or some would say the edification of the church, is not done by the pastors primarily. It's done by all of us, guys. We together are doing this. That's what he says. That's why the purpose that he has told pastors to equip so that all of us can do the work of the ministry is done by the saints. This is how these gifts work. Christ gives spiritual leadership, right? To equip the saints so that we together might minister to one another and build up the church. But to what end, Paul? Where are we going with this? Well, that's the third question we need to look at. Christ has given gifts. They work to equip the saints for ministry. But to what end? What is the result of these gifts? Verse 13, take a look. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul is saying that these gifts and their working in all the saints are headed toward a full-fledged description of Christian maturity, of growing up in Christ, of discipleship. Look at how he describes where the church is heading. We work and work and work in this way until we attain to the unity of faith or the knowledge, the son of God, to mature manhood, to the degree, or as he says, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He is saying that the work of the saints is headed toward unity. The unity of faith in Christ. Something that we already know, Paul's already told us to pursue because it declares the very nature of who God is and how he works. He is saying then also that the work of the saints is headed toward a knowledge of the Son of God. And we know also this is something that Paul already talked about back in chapter 1. He said that they would have the spirit, he prayed that they would have the spirit of revelation and wisdom in the knowledge of Christ. He is saying that the work of the saints also is headed toward mature manhood, unity, knowledge. And now he comes up with this one, kind of all-encompassing because he's going to go even further. He's going to say to mature manhood. Again, something that shouldn't surprise, surprise us, but he spells it out clearly here. You are to head toward Christian maturity, to be kind of like this, to be an adult in the things of the Lord, mature manhood. And lastly, he goes on to explain exactly what he means by that. He expands on this idea of maturity to reference something that we've seen him do over and over again. We aren't just growing up to be our own person, our version of what it looks like to be the best Christian, to be shaped by our experiences and be a very unique church in the way that we are. He is saying that the work of the saints is headed toward maturity that is measured by the stature of Christ alone. Our goal what we're looking to be is measured by the fullness of Jesus Christ. And not just the stature of Christ, but all of it to the, notice the words that he uses, the fullness of Christ. Again, this doesn't surprise us. He did this two other times already here in this book. Consider that Paul prayed towards that end in chapter 3, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. He said this about us. It doesn't surprise us because he already told at the end of chapter 1 that God gave Christ, who is the head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
The result of Christ giving these gifts is maturity in his people. Christian maturity. That we would grow in holiness and love to the point that we look less and less like our sinful, bent, rebellious beginnings. And we look more and more like Jesus Christ, the humble servant of the Lord. Paul takes a brief detour here in verses 14 through 15. And he shows us what that maturity is to look like in real life. He says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He is saying that doctrine, theology, who God is, all of that matters a great deal. That the teaching of the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and pastors is to help ground us in true doctrine. So that when tricky doctrine comes along to tempt us, or when Christian friends post different sermons and they seem a little bit not quite right, but you're not sure why, or when unbiblical philosophy tempts you to try this or that out, this way of life, you will not be like a child, but rather like a mature man that understands and thinks through these things not being willing to be led wherever the next person tells you to go. The text describes those headed towards maturity as people who aren't whipped around like they're in a giant storm or like in the middle of the ocean and it tosses them from one side to the other. But rather, Christ's gifts lead us to maturity, to a place where we can consider these arguments, where we don't just try to do whatever the next preacher and his philosophy of life tell us to do. And notice that he doesn't just leave us with a negative example, like don't be like children. (laughs) It's not a very nice thing to say, but he's like, don't be kids about this. He gives us something to go towards, what what we should positively be doing about this. Look at this, what a beautiful counterbalance, speaking the truth in love. Not only should we reject bad theology, although we should, we are to be active in telling the truth to one another. There's actually a positive movement from inside, from each of us, as we take the truth that has been taught to us and encourage or rebuke or comfort one another in the truth of Jesus Christ. We are to be speaking the truth in love. This is to the end that each of us would grow up in every way into the Lord Jesus Christ, our head. Now, how often is it that this is what we look like? I mean, if I'm just honest, I think we're often tempted to listen to the next best preacher who tells us, you know, what we should be doing or how you can have your best Christian life here and what it's supposed to look like. Uh, Friends, be careful and test these things through the scriptures. Talk about them with other believers and measure them up to Jesus Christ to make sure that this is in fact true. Maybe you don't have a problem with rejecting bad doctrine, but you don't take an active role in telling the truth to one another. Maybe you're just willing to like, not do that, but I'm, I'm not going to tell everyone else what's true. I'm not going to confront someone else. I'm not going to build people up in that way. Friend, may, maybe that's part of this, is a way for us to speak to one another, to encourage one another, to convict and rebuke and love and comfort one another, speaking these truths. Or maybe the last part is the hardest for you. Maybe you're more than willing to reject bad doctrine, and maybe you're willing to speak the truth. But man, you aren't very loving about it. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. Think about the ways that he says love acts. Patient, humble, 
does not put itself first, does not count wrongs. These things are the way that we ought to speak the truth to one another, understanding the very perfect object of love, God our Father and Jesus Christ. This is hard, but our ultimate example, Jesus Christ lovingly, patiently taught his disciples the truth. How are we doing in these areas? I'll just say, friend, take hope. If, if it's, you're like, man, I got to work on all this stuff. Me too. But our hope is in the fact that we all are in a fellowship of sufferings. The, the beauty of this is that Jesus Christ has given gifts to his church. That he cares deeply enough that he has made a way for us to have unity because of what he has done in giving us grace. In verse 16 then, we get a summary a capstone that brings this section to a close. And in this verse, Paul will answer my final question. What is the purpose of these gifts? Verse 16, he's talking about Christ. He says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, uh, when, when you trace this verse out a little bit, it can be confusing. There's so much going on here. But after putting the pieces together, we can see that he is promoting one main thing, unity. He has come all the way back and showed us what it means for the body together to act as one united in the spirit body of Christ. The answer to our question about the purpose of these gifts is unity. It's through Jesus and his indwelling us and his giving gifts to the church that he joins us together. Each of us, obviously, we look around, we're all very different. We come from different perspectives. We have different gifts. We have different lifestyles. Some of us make more money, some less. Some are incredible at this thing. Others are not so incredible at that thing. Each have different gifts that they have been given by God. Each one, though, important to the body being made together. I don't know if you know this, you probably do, but the body is not a group of elite people. I'll say the opposite of that too. The body of Christ, the church, is not a group of like uh, misfits only that can't do anything and they have no skills whatsoever. The amazing thing is that God puts all those people together and he uses each to teach the other and to build the rest of the body up. This is Christ's design and it's miraculous. It's amazing that the way he works in me and you and whatever gifts that we've been given to be sharpened and honed and pulled together and united by the gifts of the rest of the body of Christ and for the end of being united in our head, Jesus Christ. When we're working properly together in Christ, understanding all that he has made us to be, and maybe you even say, or the very least amount of stuff that he's made me to be, and you are doing those things to his glory and honor, this builds the body up in love. It works in unity. It works so that one body part isn't keeping itself from working with another body part. Uh, we get this analogy very simply, right? I mean, the leg and the hip, if they decide to not work together in love, uh, there's going to be a real problem. They're not going to be able to run a race, let alone just walk in everyday life. And we understand as members of the body of Christ, that we, because of what Jesus has done, because of his plan and his enablement through the power of these gifts, that we can and should and have joy in working together in the unity of the Spirit. It's the same with us. We're made to walk down the street, in a sense, in unity with one another. Christ chooses to work in such a way that we must depend on him and him alone for our very existence, but also for the existence of the church. 
I think often, if we're just honest, we do think it's about us and God alone. Guys, we can't forget this. Ephesians is all about this, that we are made into the body of Christ. You and I are some sort of body part or member, some sort of cell somewhere. Maybe I'm a fingernail. I'm not quite sure. But like we are made to work together in the body of Christ, growing up into our head. And none of these things can act on their own will and do what they want to and the rest of the body function properly together. His designs, his plans are miraculous. And I think that he is on to something when he has planned to do all of this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Unbelievable. We're actually going back even a little further to the glory of God and what he is doing in the entire universe and showing off his manifold wisdom to the rest of the heavenly powers angels, demons, whatever else is going on there, he is showing them that God alone is the one that's able to do this in us. And so as we take part in this thing called Christian unity, we are expressing the manifold wisdom of God. Our time in this passage should thrill us, should challenge us to be united, not around the things that we want to, not about just like, if we just get together, then we did it. No, we're talking about real unity. This breaks down the idea that if we just get together in one place, that's unity. No, no, no. Anyone can do that. Lots of different places do that. We're talking about all the things that he said in those first couple verses. Humility, loving one another, those things that are difficult for us to do because they're actually fruit of the Spirit. He is calling us, though, to something far bigger. I want to take a minute then and give us a few applications. First, church, or let's use the words he says, saints. We need to remember that we have been given gifts by our king, by Jesus. So rejoice. What a blessing. It should cause us joy to know that our unity doesn't rest on our shoulders alone, but rather that Christ has empowered us through the grace that he has given. So rejoice and trust him. Second, this is going to exclude a few of you. Elders, I want you to listen. I want to speak to you for a moment because you are Christ's gift to the church. Now, we don't mean that in a way like I'm God's gift to the church. We see it in a biblical context in all of its weight and recognize that we have been given to the church as a gift. In this passage, our goal then, our calling is to equip the saints so that the saints together can know the truth, can speak it in love in one another and grow together in unity. We are tools not kings, not governors. We are tools that he is using for his purposes. We have been given the stewardship of this authority and the responsibility to equip the saints. We must then humble ourselves, put our hands to the plow, and equip the brothers and sisters that God has given to us to be part of in this church. So elders, humbly equip. Third, for all of us again, I, I think that we kind of believe this, but doctrine matters. It matters a lot. Doctrine matters to the end that Christ gave the gifts of teachers to make sure that we all don't get whipped around by deceptive teaching that will destroy us. That's what he's saying in this passage. Therefore, what should we do but take it seriously? Study, listen, talk, pray, seek the scriptures, think, and always through this, worship the God in pure holiness, the beauty of holiness, as he says. 
Doctrine does not kill or bore people. When understood that it's real and not philosophy and not ideas about what's going on out there, when understood that it's real, this doctrine puts us on fire and helps us to understand that our lives matter and we live before this king. So instead of it bringing us to be killed or separated, rather true doctrine always, get this, always unites us. Lastly, Cornerstone, build one another up. That's what he says here. How might you ask? Paul tells us to speak the truth in love to each other. You and I must do this in this way or else we're going to tend to one ditch or the other. Either we're going to be no love and all truth and we'll be intellectuals and just hammer on people or we'll be some soft, mushy sentimentality that's just all love and never says the truth. He balances it right here. He says, speak the truth in love. This is a call to all of us. This is what we are to do for one another. Because get this, it's not about getting your stuff across to them and making sure they understand your points. It's actually about building them up in love. It's actually making them a part of God's project to be grown up into mature manhood. So I call us to speak the truth in love. This is God's way of body building itself up in love for the sake of unity and the proclamation of his greatness throughout the universe. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great plan, your great wisdom, your manifold, many-faceted wisdom that it would take all these different pieces from the world over all time and put these different things together under the head, Jesus Christ, and your church. Lord, we need you and we call to you today to work in us. We want to be serious about pursuing you. We want to be serious about speaking the truth in love. We want to be serious about equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Lord, we desire to love one another. We desire to submit to your word. But Lord, we desire to have you be honored and glorified and made much of in this world so that our neighbors and our families and our uh, other people groups that don't know you, our city would know Jesus Christ and worship you. God, you are great and holy, just and true. We praise you together today and ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.